Welcome to the Zanbergen Report, where wealth strategies and pop culture collide, featuring your distinguished host and certified financial planner, Bart Zandbergen. Welcome to our show of Dream Chasers and Wealth Makers. We are thrilled to be back in the studio today with a new episode of the Zanbergen Report. I'm proud to bring in the movers, shakers, and difference makers who are passionate about sharing what they have learned and what you need to know today. Today, I am very pleased to have, I'm going to just call it Ben Squared. (laughs) (laughs) We have Ben McMillan, CIO, and Ben Jacobson, Managing Director of IDX. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Bart. Sure. Thanks for having us. Sure. So if it's not obvious, we have one Ben in studio and one Ben uh, in studio via Zoom, but uh, that's okay. So as many of you know, we have asked, what's what's the most important thing you want to hear about these days? And what's, what's of most interest in, without a doubt, the subject of crypto, Bitcoin? Give us something on that. So today we're giving you what you want. We're going to, today is all things crypto, all things Bitcoin. So these gentlemen here seem to know a thing or two about uh, crypto and Bitcoin. So uh, what I'd like to do is first start with um, Ben Jacobson. Uh, ben, a little bit about your kind of what got you into crypto world, and then Ben will go to you, Ben McMillan. Sure. Well, you know, for me, it was I really grew up kind of in the, the quantitative asset management arena, really meaning more so we don't just wake up one morning and think, hey, something's a good idea. Rather, we build a system and a rules process around it such that that can help inform us when's a good time to be participating versus not participating. And I was doing this for a commodity trading advisor. So we were trading 145, 150 different markets across the globe with all the same very much rules-based risk-driven approach. Um, So I was turned on to Bitcoin by one of our clients, I want to say 2013, 2014, and originally just kind of started trading it on my own with some of the things that we learned um, kind of in the quantitative space of managing risk, because as we all know, it's a very volatile, very uh, up and down type of asset class. Uh, so for us, managing risk was always important for what I was doing in the, kind of my professional life. So I figured I took that same thing to actually trading cryptocurrencies. And at the time, it was primarily Bitcoin. Um, so from there, kind of, you know, continue to trade it on my own here and there, um, have some ups, have some downs, just like anybody else, I think, <laughs> in that space. Yeah. Um, but it really wasn't until I started working with Ben uh, where he was kind of turned me on to, all right, well, let's apply some of these things that we've used from other aspects in, in wealth management, whether that's stocks, whether that's bonds, whether that's commodities, but start to apply them to, to things like crypto. All of a sudden, I stopped trading my own personal money and just kind of had it in our, our more of a risk-managed type of, type yeah. of approach there. Um, so I'd say early on, early on more so than, than a lot of others, um, but have definitely learned a lot along the way and I'm still continuing to learn as, yeah. as we go along. Yeah, here. I'm sure you do. And we're going to talk a lot more about your company as well before we get through here. Uh, ben McMillan, how about you? Well, like you said, I mean, I've, I've got people who, uh, like my little cousin who has no business whatsoever taking any kind of risks, is text, texting me asking what kind of crypto you should buy. And the last time he did that was at the absolute top in 2017. So we've definitely, uh, it definitely feels familiar. For, you know, for me, it was interesting because I, you know, I was already out of school and I remember this guy telling me, actually, it was the first boss I ever worked for who was a really sharp guy I mean, a proper genius. And he said, hey, have you heard about Bitcoin? This is like 2011. And I was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So he sent me this Satoshi paper and he's kind of explaining it to me. He had to explain it to me like three different times. I was like, all right, that's, you know, that's super interesting. And he's like, yeah, he goes, it's actually trading. You know, it's trading for like 20 cents. He's like, he goes, you can set up a mining node 
to you know facilitate the kind of decentralized computational power and you could earn Bitcoin. And I was like, all right, you know, if you earn enough, you know, pick up enough quarters, it'll be worth something. You know, at that time we, you know, we did the math and ended up being like 60 cents a day of, of electricity to mine, you know, 50 cents of Bitcoin. Um, but of course, you know, hindsight being 2020. What was interesting was, um, you know, for me, the kind of the, the, the social, you know, you know, back then, you know, the blockchain concept was clearly novel. Um, you know, the kind of the, the trustless, you know, the permissionless uh, custodial function that it, it provides, you know, was was interesting from an academic perspective, but it was difficult to see how that would translate to the real world. And what was kind of fascinating for me to see in those early days was, and I remember actually reading an article in Wired Magazine about the Silk Road, um, you know, the black marketplace, um, where Bitcoin was, you know, actually basically their central currency. And, you know, that was kind of fascinating from a, 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 from an economic perspective was that, you know, facilitated this semi-anonymous, Bitcoin's not anonymous, but, you know, semi-anonymous, you know, very easy exchange of wealth across uh, country borders, um, you know, that guy ended up getting taken down, uh, the, 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 the moderator of that site. Um, I know there's a movie out there for those that haven't seen it. It's, it's totally worth watching, but the way the FBI took him down was absolutely fascinating. It's worth reading the Wired article if you have it. Don't tell us but yet. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Don't tell us how it ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's, it's totally worth it. But again, you know, this is, this is circa 2011, 2012. I think he was arrested in 2013. You know, Bitcoin is still very much a novelty. It was, it was still very much the domain of kind of, you know, the black market, the Silk Roads of the world. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because going into 2017, you started seeing more and more real world use cases. I remember I, I, worked, um, I worked right off Central Park in New York and there was a bar, you know, in 2015 that started accepting Bitcoin as payment. You know, you started seeing, seeing it pop up. And then, you know, fast forward to today, you know, the obvious question is, well, what, what's different today from 2017? How do we know this isn't just, you know, kind of more tulip mania? And, you know, the, the big difference we see is, you know, back in 2017, it was purely speculative. Um, you know, the, the use cases for Bitcoin were still kind of largely academic. There wasn't a lot of real world, um, you know, transactions happening on the blockchain. Um, you know, fast forward to 2020, and so-called DeFi, you know, decentralized finance, is, has absolutely grown. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the the uh, the use cases are here. There, there's tens of billions of dollars transacting on them, and it's very clear to see how this technology is is going to be disruptive across payments, you know, supply chains, you know, I mean, just everything. You know, the, the United Nations has a, a pilot project looking at. Um, you know, tracking identities for refugees using blockchain. So it's 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 a sea change in terms of you know utility from from what we saw last time around. But again, you know, I still got my little cousin texting me asking me, you know, <laughs> what should he buy now? So all right, so we're gonna kind of bring it back a little bit and then bring it back forward. So I think it would be really interesting for those who don't know. Let's break it down to what is a Bitcoin, what is cryptocurrency, and then even blockchain. So just a Brief definition of each. Yep. So, so Bitcoin is just a representation. It's, you can think of it as, a, as kind of a unit of compute on the blockchain. Um, and so the, the blockchain itself is, is really the crux. And all it is is just a decentralized database. And so as opposed to having a database, you know, at a bank or within a company, which is, you know, centralized on servers or on the cloud these days, you know, Amazon, AWS, 
users across the world, the network, contribute their computers, um, know, these Bitcoin nodes, you know, you download a set of software, it's the same across everybody's computers, and it, that software has on it protocol for sending the transactions back and forth in a permissionless way, and what that means, these transactions, you know, being reflected by the Bitcoins themselves. And what the, the way that works, the way it's permissionless, is you have the network essentially verify the transaction. So as opposed to having, and this is really kind of the, the key issue, so as opposed to having a trusted intermediary, like a bank or, you know, uh, whoever, a custodian, somebody who's, who's you know, tr- watching the settlement, um, you know, ticking in a ledger who owns what, the network is doing that in a distributed fashion. And in ex- now that takes computing power. Um, in exchange for that, each portion, when you send a Bitcoin, a portion of that is reserved for these people contributing their computing power. Well, those are the miners. And so very early on, people figured out that the, the type of com- computing power that was being contributed was, you know, could be harnessed in a very specific set of servers. You know, so when you hear about Bitcoin mining facilities, all those are, are servers that are optimized to facilitate Bitcoin transactions. And in exchange, they get a piece of the Bitcoin that I send to you or whomever um, as a fee. And so that's that's really kind of, you know, the crux of it. All it is is, you know, being able to send that information without having to rely on a trusted intermediary. You know, it's, it's distributed, so it can't be shut down. I mean, I remember this is one of the early things. You know, people were saying, oh, you know, the government doesn't like Bitcoin. They're just going to shut it down. I kept saying, no, you don't understand. They can't. I mean, they'd have to. You'd have to, you know, shut down, you know, 51% of the nodes, which at this point is, you know, it's global. There's even a Bitcoin mining facility in, in Antarctica. And so, you know, part of the utility, and, you know, we talked about this with the Fidelity Digital Assets Group and a WebEx we did with them last year. A large part of the value of Bitcoin or any blockchain for that matter is that it has a critical mass of distribution. Um, and because Bitcoin started so early and was able to you know, spread across the globe so quickly, it was able to kind of occupy that top spot, which will be difficult to replace. So that's one of the reasons why you know, people say, well, you know, what about these new blockchains? And there's you know, a lot of them being developed for specific protocols. But again, you've started to see you know, getting enough, you know, the issue they often face is getting enough decentralization such that they can't be shut down. And even you know, some of the protocols these days are so-called semi-centralized and things like that. So, you know, really the genius of the, the genius and the utility of the Bitcoin blockchain is that it is, it is purely decentralized on, you know, millions of these nodes, millions of these, of these people contributing computing power on all seven continents. And it allows us to, you know, send information back and forth without having to rely on, on an inter- intermediary. And so when you think about, you know, fast forward, you know, there's obvious implications for payments. Logistics is another use case. I mean, you know, just anything where you want to, um, you know, capture data going back and forth um, in a distributed, decentralized way. You know, blockchain is a, a really, um, you know, per- potentially perfect solution. At the end of the day, blockchain and cryptocurrency are two separate um, technologies. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, so the Bitcoin is is a is a piece of the blockchain, but it, it, exactly, you know. So you know, and, and fast forward to today, you know, Bitcoin has obviously kind of emerged as an asset. Um, so it represents, you know, you could, a crypto asset, something like a currency that can be held for you know investment slash speculative purposes. You know, it's part of the blockchain ecosystem, but it it you know it, in and of itself, you know, 
powers the utility of the blockchain, but the blockchain is, you know, does have a separate utility. And so there's lots of, you know, there's, you know, the blockchain ecosystem, there's lots of, um, you know, companies, companies specializing on different types of blockchains to, you know, facilitate very specific um, objectives, like, you know, pay, solving the payments issue is very different than solving supply chains, logistics and things like that. And so you're seeing companies like, you know, IBM and, you know, Walmart and PayPal each kind of migrate to different blockchains, uh, you know, depending on what problem is it is they want to solve. And each one of those blockchains has, is either built on Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that, but they each have a token which powers that blockchain and those tokens have utility and, you know, investors such as all of us are now, you know, buying and holding those tokens on a bet that the blockchain is going to have, you know, whatever that blockchain is, it's going to continue to have utility. So yeah, but you can think of a Bitcoin as one piece of the blockchain ecosystem, um, specifically the piece that, um, you know, has, has the value. It's like the, you know, it's like the deed to the car or something like that. You know, the car actually drives where you want it to go, but the deed is what, you know, has value and can transact ownership and things like that for the title rather. All right. I, I want to spend a lot of time on kind of where it is today, how it's viewed as an investment and so on. But before we get there, so that, uh, I, I, that's how I want to, to spend most of the time. But give, if you can, a kind of summarized history of, you talked about the Silk Road. So many of us are under the perception that, you know, in the early days that uh, Bitcoin may or may not have been used for illegal transactions, untraceable, no taxes, and if any of that's true, confirm, and then kind of fast forward with some milestones as to how we are, where we are today. Yeah. So I, I you know, I just, again, you know, I was kind of very fascinated with the, the, the economic and kind of mathematical aspect of Bitcoin. So I remember like going on the Silk Road and just seeing, first of all, I was, I was shocked at what was for sale on that. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I mean, everything, like, drugs, <laughs> drugs I didn't even know existed. I was like, I was Googling, I was like, wait, what is this? Like, and then, you know, AK-47. So I was, I was shocked that that even existed. Um, and then, you know, obviously the Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin at that point, the idea was that Bitcoin was this, you know, they were trading for $2. I, I distinctly remember, you know, Bitcoin was $2 on the Silk Road. Um, and they, you know, they were the arbiter of price because most of the volume back then was on the Silk Road. There was a couple of these one-off sites. There was like an eBay for Bitcoin that I remember like selling a textbook on. Um, but, you know, what was interesting was back then people thought Bitcoin was totally anonymous. And you had a couple of these, you know, early programmers. There was a couple of early hacks on some of the exchanges. I mean, this is way before Coinbase. So there was, you know, even like the predecessor, Mt. Gox was kind of the first one that I remember. But there were some predecessor exchanges that were getting hacked. And I remember that a couple of these kind of forensic programmers were able to trace the wallets to, you know, not only specific countries, but groups of people that, you know, they thought they were affiliated with. And, you know, this was like circa 2012, 2013. And that was really a first flag that, hey, this is, you know, this may not be purely anonymous. You know, so that was interesting. You know, and then, you know, Silk Road got taken down, I think, in 2013, 2012, 2013. And at around that time, I, I distinctly remember seeing to, you know, the kind of Bitcoin popping up more in a payment solution. So like I said, there was a couple of bars in Manhattan that started accepting Bitcoin. That was mainly a marketing novelty play. But if you remember back then, Overstock.com was one, you know, um, this, the CEO's name's escaping me, but he was very bullish on Bitcoin. And he was very early in terms of accepting Bitcoin on Overstock.com. And so that was very interesting too. Um, I remember telling the guy who first told me about Bitcoin, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if you started seeing, you know, dedicated 
Amazon coins, you know, a, a dedicated blockchain for things like Amazon coins, kind of these membership rewards. Um, and so, you know, by 20, uh, you know, so that was 2012, I think was, was when Overstock started accepting, accepting Bitcoin. And for me, when I became personally very bullish on Bitcoin was when in 2012, when the IRS came out with tax guidance. And that's when I, I distinctly remember having a conversation in New York with a very big uh, family office, a billion dollar family office. And we were having this exact conversation. He goes, well, what do you, what do you think about Bitcoin long-term? And I told him, I said, the IRS just came out with tax guidance around Bitcoin and specifically that it was going to be taxed like real estate, not like a security. Um, and I said, that to me conveys a high level of credibility that this is going to be around to stay. They're not looking to shut it down. They, first of all, they can't shut it down. So they just want to tax it. So, so the IRS issuing tax guidance was to me a big implicit stamp of not necessarily approval, but recognition that this is this is here to stay. And that was back in you know 2012 when you know Bitcoin was still around you know you know uh, I think uh, you know under 100 bucks. So you know on the back of that, it started to seem like you know 2013, 2014, 2015, you started seeing Bitcoin be accepted on more online merchants. Um, and then it kind of went into, you know, the speculative phase, obviously 2017, you know, at that point, there was a lot of interesting use cases. We started seeing a lot of, you know, Ethereum came onto the market too. You know, that was, that was more around like 2014, 2015, you know, all these other chains came on, but Ethereum was the one too, where they said, listen, you know, Bitcoin has great utility, but it doesn't have enough functionality built into the blockchain. We need to introduce this idea of smart contracts. And that was revolutionary. I mean, the, the smart tr- contract capability of Ethereum, you could see right away how that could impact, how that could power all kinds of protocols. I mean, it could everything from, you know, gambling to complex insurance, you know, uh, instruments, security settlement. Um, this, you know, the smart contract capability was really, you know, to me that was a that was a big. Uh, that was a defining moment that, hey, blockchain is is clearly going to be a, a disruptive force. Um, it's not clear what it looks like yet, but there's there's enough utility here that it's not going anywhere. And then, you know, there was a speculative frenzy of 2017. Um, you know, at that point, it was largely, you know, retail. There weren't a lot of institutional dollars tracking it. Bitcoin fell off a cliff in 2018, but it was during that so-called crypto winter where, um, you know, I remember going on these developer, you know, telegrams and discords, and, you know, actually, you know, reading on these Reddit channels, what the developers on these different blockchains were doing. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff under the hood. And it just seems like in 2020, it all kind of came to fruition. There was enough, it was the catalyst of, you know, you know, obviously the, the Fed printing money the way it did got a lot of people to kind of pivot their view and say, we got to look at something different. And, it, you know, I think that was the institution community that said, we've crossed the Rubicon here. We need to start looking at, you know, assets that can't be printed. Gold being the obvious um, poster child, but, you know, Bitcoin being its so-called digital cousin. And that seemed to usher in, you know, a whole new era of interest in what was happening below the surface. And lo and behold, there was a ton of amazing development that had already been done over those, subs- you know, those previous years that was just now coming to the marketplace. So if you look at, you know, one of the most relevant metrics to look at is just you know how many dollars are actually being transacted through these different blockchain protocols, um, you know. And at the end of you know if you go back to you know 2017, it was maybe in the tens of millions. You know, at the end of 2020, 
it was about three billion. As it stands today, it's fifty billion. So that tells you that you know this is this is exploding in terms of, of you know functionality and, and protocols and, and capabilities that have been brought to market. There's a lot to unpack there, and I broke down like 25 questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the last one and kind of work my way back. So, the recent let's call it meteoric rise in the value of of Bitcoin, of course, has a lot of people talking. I uh, I think that there is, and and I and I know you guys have invested in both. There's a correlation, not a correlation. There's a connection, maybe a distant cousin from gold to Bitcoin. Would you agree? I mean, yeah, to no, a certain degree, was- from you know, it's it's a Current kind of a current well, some Bitcoin is more of a currency, but gold at one day what years ago was a currency. Uh, they don't generate dividends; they're just their their stores a, of value. Stores of value. Yep. So why? So this, there's going to be a multi-layered question, and I'm and I'm I'm a I'm a wealth advisor, so I'm questioning this growth. Is it sustainable? Um, are we in a? You mentioned it earlier. You've taken so many of my points and just kind of threw them out. It makes everything I say now like less relevant. <laughs> but I was going to compare to, um, you know, the black swan tulip. Um, you know, back in the 1600s in Holland. If we compare to gold in the and look at gold's performance, you know, I had a nice, a reasonable 2020 and and a negative 2021. What makes Bitcoin so much more valuable? They're both. They both need to be mined. They're both limited. There's a there's a finite number of Bitcoin. There's a, there's a finite amount of gold. You can mine more apparently of each. The whole mining of Bitcoin is still very confusing to me. But maybe we'll have time to talk about that. So, give me some feedback on that. Are we in a tulip situation? Can Bitcoin continue to rise? And why is it doing so much better than gold? Yeah, so it's an excellent question. I, mean, I think the comparison is spot on. I mean, in gold, I mean, in many ways, to your point about gold, you know, being a currency, I think is is becoming, you know, increasingly the case as you know, as you know, institutional investors have started to express real concerns about fiat currency, mm-hmm. you know, fiat debasement. You know, they're looking to gold as a currency, and you know, gold has a benefit of having been around forever. You know, humans have been fascinated with gold. Um, you know, since since you know the the inception of time, basically, and so it's. You know, gold has always been a store of value, so it has that in its favor. But you know, I always like Warren Buffett's quote where he says, "If you owned all the gold in the world, you would basically have an Olympic-sized swimming pool filled of a shiny yellow metal that did nothing." As, exactly as you said, it pays no dividends, doesn't represent an ownership in a company or anything like that. And you know, so when you compare it to you know something like Bitcoin, you know, I would have said back in 2017. You know, I would have said it's a lot more like tulip mania um, because it's not clear that these use cases for for Bitcoin have really been worked out. You know, there's a lot of inter- there's a lot of promise here, and I'm using Bitcoin generically, Bitcoin Ethereum. You know, there's a lot of promise here back then, but it, we really need to see its its capability proved out. We need, you know, we need we need to see scale. We need to see more than just a couple of you know uh, you know interesting protocols sending you know a few million bucks back and forth. We need to see billions of dollars solving real world problems. That's where we are today. So that's why I would say, you know, from here, I think it's, it's you know, it's impossible to call a price target, but this is, you know, Bitcoin at, at you know, $50,000, $60,000 is very different than Bitcoin at $20,000 uh, in 2017, because these use cases that it can now power, that it is powering are, you know, just manifold. It's so the opportunity set, ironically, despite the higher price, the opportunity set is multiples bigger for Bitcoin and, and blockchain in general. 
Now, what's interesting, you know, back to your point about kind of how it interplays with gold, you know, there's there's always a question. We talk about this with some of our bigger institutional clients. Is, you know, I was asked this question yesterday. Do you think, you know, dollars are coming out of gold and flowing into Bitcoin? You know, it's it's tough to get a read on that. Um, you know, gold has had its has had an interesting um, kind of metamorphosis over the last few years. I mean, you know, for for the longest time, the largest marginal buyer of gold was was basically, you know, women in India buying it for jewelry purposes. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, ETFs, which, you know, exploded in their own right with this act of the passive migration, you know, just very recently became the largest marginal buyer of gold. Um, so that's, you know, suggesting that, you know, a lot of, you know, retail dollars, institutional as well, but a lot of retail dollars are, are flowing into gold. And then central banks, um, it's no secret that, you know, China and Russia are, are you know ramping up gold and selling treasuries and so you know it's 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 interesting that i i think a lot of that will also find its way into bitcoin you know you've you've, you've kind of got a bifurcated investor base of people that really like the blockchain and you know are probably going to start to invest in you know some specific tokens that power kind of certain objectives and then you've got other people that say you know i own gold i'm going to take a piece of my gold allocation and you know put it into crypto you know because it's it's the digital gold, and the last thing I'll say about that too is, as we've talked to clients, it seems to skew younger. You know, the younger generation. You know, I, we had this conversation actually in an advisor's office uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ben and myself, and the guy said, you know, I like gold, but what if I have to, you know, leave the country? And this was a young, you know, twenty-something guy. He's like, with you know, he held up his ledger wallet, his hard wallet that had his bitcoins on it. He's like, with this, I can put it in my pocket, and hop on a plane, and go. Now, you know, why he would need to leave the country, I don't know. I didn't ask, but you know, <laughs> with Bitcoin, he can, you know, he can do that. And that's, I think that's the point though, is it's, it's the, you know, it's, it's potentially the digital gold for, you know, a different type of investor or a different cohort, but it's, I think you're spot on with the, the comparisons. I mean, I, I think they're, they're, they're very close cousins from an investment perspective. Yeah. That's why I'm having such a hard time with the, the difference in values and the difference of, of return of investment on the two. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. You know, gold, you know, gold in particular, again, gold's been kind of fascinating this year because, you know, gold has always kind of tracked real, real yields, um, which isn't surprising, you know, as, as, as the opportunity cost of, you know, back to Buffett's point, if gold doesn't pay a dividend, and this is actually reminds me, I had a conversation with uh, a Swiss guy a, a couple of years ago, and he was, he's very, um, very anti-gold, hates gold. He's, you know, he's of the Buffett camp that doesn't do anything. And all of a sudden he said, yeah, you know, our, our, the family office that he, that he works for is, is you know, having trouble getting vault space in Switzerland to store gold. And I was like, what are you doing buying gold? <laughs> he's like, listen, he goes, here in Europe, rates are negative. He goes, so now all of a sudden gold technically is paying a dividend because the storage <laughs> fees are less than the negative real yield. And, you know, that's, that's driving, a, that, would, that drove a lot of influx into gold. You know, recently we've seen that decouple a little bit, and that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, and, and back to your point about how that plays in with Bitcoin, you know, I, I think, you know, Bitcoin is still kind of the new kid on the block. There's a novelty factor, of course, you know, people, people are getting excited. You know, one of the things we do is, is scrub social media for sentiment, just so we can understand, you know, what the conversations are happening around Bitcoin. And, you know, after the Tesla tweets or after the PayPal tweet or Square and things like that, you know, there's a huge euphoria kind of around, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, getting in before the, you know, before it hits all time highs. And so that's, that's powering a lot of it. But, you know, again, it's, you know, we, we, we look, we, one of the 
last thing I'll say about this is, you know, one of the appeals from an investment perspective of Bitcoin is that the blockchain, because it's decentralized, you can, you can see a lot of information about what's going on. You know, unlike exchanges where there's dark pools, you can't see order books and things like that. You know, what happened with Robinhood, you know, shutting down GameStop, there's, there's decentralized uh, blockchain powered trading protocols, which are up and running, have, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars flowing through them. And, you know, they facilitate the same stock trading that something like a Robinhood could. But because they're decentralized, there's nobody behind there, you know, throwing the switch saying, wait a second, you can't, you know, buy and sell these. Um, and so, you know, when you look at that, you know, there's, you know, back to my point about the, what's unique about the blockchain is th there's more perfect information. So you can see, you know, where the, where the supports and resistances are. You can see where miners are selling. You can see where the institutional buyers are buying at what level. And then, you know, one of the things we like to look at is when these large blocks of Bitcoins are being purchased and then they're, when they're moved off the exchanges into so-called cold wallets um, as a safety mechanism, that presumably represents that they have no intention of selling them anytime soon. And so when we're looking at these levels, and that's one of the things we tell our clients is, you know, we're still in a structurally, what appears to be a very structurally bullish um, period for Bitcoin. That's not to say there's not going to be corrections as with any, you know, risk asset. And again, you know, if you look back at March, 2020, that was an interesting period because Bitcoin sold off with, you know, equities and, and, you know, in many cases, that was, I think, a good, um, um, you know, corroboration of the fact that Bitcoin was now a fungible asset. It was actually becoming institutionalized because, you know, it was presumably being liquidated to meet things like margin calls. Um, but anyway, that's a lot, that's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, this time is different because, you know, we have greater visibility on, on, in terms of who's buying at what prices on, um, and, and what are they doing with them? Are they leaving them on exchanges? To, to try and make a quick buck or are they taking them off storing them and so you know it is it's it, you know the, the setup that we have now is is longer term much more bullish than it was in 2017. so you started this whole um this bit of the conversation by saying where there's a bit of a euphoria you you know when uh, there was another time when there was a lot of euphoria tulips <laughs> um we're going to get into your guys' strategy, which actually your strategy has is works whether there is a euphoria and and it's a tulip situation or not because I like the way you guys do what you do. Um, but before I get there, last thing. So I was going to cover like myths, like Bitcoin myths, and yeah. a couple you've already covered, of course. So is it le is it illegal? That I mean, a lot of people have that sense, and of course, it's not illegal. Um, is it traceable or anonymous? You've now indicated that that is not the case, correct? Anyone yeah, who owns it, Bitcoin, it, there's there's someone who knows who who owns. So it's they you know they can they can't necessarily. So first of all, you know any anybody in the U.S. that owns Bitcoin at some point, unless you went you know, and I remember early on in Craigslist, you, you would see these Bitcoin swaps <laughs> before Coinbase ex existed. You know, yeah. you would see these kind of barter like. Hey, I've got a Bitcoin. I want to buy, um, you know, a, a Mac computer. Let's meet up at a cafe in Brooklyn and like, we'll, tr you know, transfer the Bitcoin. You give me the computer. And people were doing that. So, you know, theoretically, yeah, if you did that, that, you know, th the wallet is public, your wallet address, but to the, you know, to the degree that you could, you know, make sure your wallet wasn't connected to you digitally, then, then technically it, it is anonymous, but you know, any U S investor, is at some point transacting fiat for Bitcoin through a Coinbase, through whatever. 
And, you know, so that for all intents and purposes, it's, it's, it's not anonymous. Right. And again, if, you know, there's, there's other options. If you're worried about that, then you probably already know, you know <laughs> how, to, how to stay on. All right. I, so I have another myth, but I just want to make sure everyone understands what a fiat is, which is just a traditional currency, right? Like a like cash stock. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So I, I I'm willing to bet eighty percent of the public, if not higher, feels or thinks that you do not pay taxes on Bitcoin. That's one of their motivation of buying Bitcoin. So address that. That should not be a motivation for buying Bitcoin. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's yeah, not true, right? Coming, yeah. yeah, the IRS is coming down to that. I, so I remember, I mean, I, I sold I sold a bunch of Bitcoin in, 2000, <laughs> That's right. in 2017. And yeah. the accountant I was using at the time was like, we don't know what to do about this. And I'm literally forwarding them. And I'm like, I, I want to pay taxes on this. Like, you know, the IRS said it should be real estate. Just, I think it's long-term capital gains. Like, let's let's do it. You know, so yeah. And the IRS is cracking down on that. And again, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike, you know, legalized marijuana or, or gambling or something like that. If, if, if it's going to happen anyway and they can tax it, you know, why not? It's, 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 you know, basically free money for the government. So yeah, do not, do not buy Bitcoin expecting to um, not pay taxes because those, those penalties will ramp up quickly. All right. So last thing, you've, you've addressed a little bit kind of uh, here and there, but let's talk about the, the, the risks involved. One of them could kind of maybe fall under the myth uh, category um, is, I forgot what it was going to be. Um, I'll remember. So talk about some of the risks. Well, like a lot of people question, well, how do I know people won't steal it? You know, they're uncomfortable oh. with the idea of like, you know, I own a bunch of ones and zeros that's distributed across the world. How do I know it's not going to be stolen from me? And so, and, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of these high profile hacks. So what I've always said is, and from day one, I mean, this, this, you could see this was going to happen on exchanges. And this is exactly why going back to my point where you can see on the blockchain, you can see wallets transacting, moving Bitcoins from uh, addresses that are um, known exchange addresses into cold wallet because the exchanges can be hacked much like a bank can be robbed. Um, but so when you, you know, and nowadays, you know, firms like Coinbase have options where you can put your Bitcoin, you know, you can, you can deposit dollars into Coinbase, you can buy Bitcoin on their exchange, and then you can either hold it in that trading account or you can move it into what they call their vault. And their vault is a cold wallet. So what that means is that's a, the, the equivalent of like a USB drive, just like in that 20 year old guy's pocket, um, except it's in a safety deposit box. So it's not connected to the internet and they even have a fascinating set of protocols around that but it's unplugged, it's not connected to the internet. Um, and so for somebody to steal that, they would literally have to physically break into that vault, steal that thumb drive, and then they would also have to have your private key. So at the institutional level, people are often shocked when you know, we, we go, and I, I had a conversation with the head of a very big US bank whose name we would all know, and he was saying the exact same thing. And I said, no, 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 no. I was like, talk to these guys, they'll take you through how they do it. It is much more secure than you think at the institutional level. So again, if you're leaving, you know, if you're leaving your coins on an exchange, then you know, those exchanges can get hacked just like any website can get hacked or any bank can get robbed. But if you, you know, if you buy your Bitcoin and then move it into a wallet of which, you know, that that capability exists kind of, you know, categorically now, there it is it's pretty tough to steal those. All right. So my this was my last myth, which is also a slash potential risk. Um, you forget your password key, whatever you call it. You're the what I have heard is you're done. 
You're, 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 done. you're, not, you're done. Are you done? Is that yeah, a true? That's not a myth. There's, there's horror <laughs> stories. You can read about them. I have, you know, two buddies for whom this has happened and you, you are done. So there's, I mean, <laughs> you know, the best examples, I think, I think it's in Germany, a guy tossed out a USB, you know, he was a programmer who did a bunch of early work for Bitcoin, thought it was worthless back when it was a couple dollars or whatever, taught, you know, through the USB driver where the computer or whatever. And now he's, he's offering a $70 million bounty to the town to help him, you know, go to the dump and dig up that computer because it's, you know, 200 million of Bitcoin. The bounty is 70 million. <laughs> yeah. Or 70 yeah. million pounds a year yeah. or whatever it is. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So no, but that's that. I mean, that is a non-trivial risk too. I mean, I can, you know, it's, it's happened to me. I had fortunately not with Bitcoin, but with another, you know, another smaller coin, um, yeah. you know, the computer burned out and I didn't, I didn't print out, you know, the credentials, the private key and, and save it like I should have. And, you know, they're burned, you know, fortunately it wasn't 70 million or any, anywhere near, but that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that is a risk, but again, you know, that's, that's less of a risk when you interface now with, you know, firms like Coinbase. Again, I keep referencing them, but they do a really good job of making it very easy to buy Bitcoin. And that's who we use to buy Bitcoin or Grayscale for that matter. You know, Grayscale is the, the publicly traded um, trust that that basically all they do is buy Bitcoin. You know, they, they take care of all those issues for you. But that's a real issue. All right. So we are technically out of time, but I'm going to push it just a few more minutes. So another any additional risks that our listeners should be aware of. And then we're going to get into what you guys and how you're doing it. Well, I mean, the last one is just the volatility and that's something, you know, we tell sure. people, look, you know, look, <laughs> this is, Bitcoin is no stranger to, you know, 90% drawdowns. And what I always tell people is, you know, it's one thing when you look at a chart and say, yeah, you know, I could endure that because it's up, you know, a zillion percent and I'm going to buy a Lambo and da, 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 da. But when you're living through a 90% drawdown, I mean, what, what am I, you, you made the point about the, the tulip craze. You know, 100 years later was the South Seas bubble. And one of my favorite anecdotes from that was that was around the time of Isaac Newton. And he himself lost a fortune betting on the speculative mania of, you know, the South Seas bubble. And I think, you know, none other than John Maynard Keynes, the, you know, the grandfather of macroeconomics said not even Isaac Newton was immune to, you know, the greed and fear of yeah. you know, the FOMO factor, so to speak. Yeah. And so the reason I mentioned that is because we always tell clients to think about the math of drawdowns. You know, when you're down 10%, you only need to be back up 11% to get back to break even. Right. When you get down to 50%, you got to do your money. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And then yeah. God forbid you, you're down 90%, <laughs> you know, you've got to hit the lotto to get back to even. And so, yeah. you know, Bitcoin is no stranger to the 50, you know, 50 to 90% drawdown yeah. range. So the all ball right. is real. So thanks for sharing that. Um, all right. So um, either, Ben, tell us and tell the listeners, you know, what your, I, I guess you can't tell your secret sauce, but what it is you do and how you are successful. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So for us, what ultimately what we're trying to do is make this more investable for the common person. So the common investor is going to, you know, like we talked about, go through an 80%, 90% drawdown and say, I'm out. We've all seen that chart where it goes up, greed, you buy more, it goes down, sure. fear, you sell, and repeat until broke. So yeah. really our aim and what we've been doing the last few years for, for professional investors is really just take a, a an approach designed not, not necessarily optimized to have the highest returns all the time, but optimized to keep you in the game. Optimized to not suffer these big drawdowns because if we can go from – uh, you know, say a, a 70, 80% draw on it and reduce that to 20 or 30, well, now you can spend a lot more time compounding instead of catching up. And then over time, if it's a marathon that we're running, you should win the marathon. So that's ultimately from a high level what, what we're trying to do. I'm sure Ben could say it uh, a little bit more eloquently than that. 
No, no, I mean, that's, that's basically it is just, you know, trying to bring the volatility of this asset class into something that's just a little bit more manageable, you know? So, you know, even if it's a tiny position, 100% annualized vol is, is just, it's going to present a lot of emotional headaches. You're going to be, you know, people are going to be worried about it. If it can look more like, you know, commodities complex or gold, I mean, that's how we like to think about it is if you can systematically reduce the vol of crypto to something more like a gold, it's easier to fit into more portfolios. It's it's more tenable. It's just we think it's just a smarter risk to take longer term. I think an important point to make here is that we're not just you know looking you know staying up all night looking for Elon Musk tweets to sign whether to get in or, or to get out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really it's it's an approach driven by big data, by academic and empirical evidence. Um, so we're not up all night looking to see, all right, should we get in or should we get out? We don't wake up one morning and think, oh, today's probably a good day to, to get out because it seems like it's it's been yeah. on a good run up. It's all a an academic rules-driven approach. By the way, this is all stuff that we learned on Wall Street, stuff that we applied to different asset classes that right. works really well for something as volatile as Bitcoin. Right. And I think it's, it's worth sharing that you guys are quant-based, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Very good. All right. In close, um, if you've listened to my show before, you know I have a final thought question, and that is – what is your ultimate lesson learned? And I will say as just financial professionals, you can use your current career or anything you learned over the time, over your years. Uh, at least for me, it's, it's how important the psychology behind all these types of things are. Um, you, we've all seen the stories of the Bitcoin millionaires here and there. How many of those folks do you really think just held on and didn't sell the whole time? Mm-hmm. Um, how many of those folks do you think, you know, sold at the bottom when they could have held on? And, I think that whether or not you're talking about Bitcoin, whether you're talking about gold, whether you're talking about stocks or any of these other things, as humans, our flight or flight mechanisms are not really designed for investing. In fact, it's quite the contrary to that. (laughs) So if we can put rules in place and guardrails around the things that we're doing such that we don't fall into those traps, these behavioral biases that we have, um, then, you know, ultimately you can have a, a much better result over time. And biggest lesson that I've learned is I live in that. I, I do that every day for a living, yet I still find myself falling into some of these traps <laughs> at times. They're just ingrained into us. Um, and I'd make the argument, maybe this is, we save this for another podcast, but this is how we survived. This is how we made it over Neanderthals or any other you know, species out there is we had these fight or flight mechanisms, but they don't work great for investing. Yeah. You hear that, Danielle? We had another podcast, Fight or Flight. <laughs> Anything from you, Ben? I mean, I would echo that 100%. It's, it's the behavioral psychology is, is the investor's biggest enemy. And that's why I like that Isaac Newton anecdote is because it, it's not a function of intelligence. It's, it's emotional IQ. And the best way to mitigate that is just, just have a set of rules. And that's why we like the systematic process is because it's a set of rules. You can set it and forget it. And, you know, we don't have to be looking at the price of Bitcoin or anything else for that matter all day, every day. It's, you know, let the rules work for themselves over time, whether or not it's trading an algo stock or, you know, a person's financial plan for retirement. It's all the same rules, you know, rules, rules equal freedom. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Ben, you want to give uh, people an idea how to learn more about you? Sure. Uh, Best thing you can do is go to www.idx-us.com. That's a dash like a, like a minus sign or a hyphen. Um, there's a ton of information there. Another great resource for folks is if you want to go to uh, to hear, learn more about this particular strategy that we're talking about, www.idxinsights.com uh, forward slash coin. That'll get re- you right to the model page. There'll be FAQs. There'll be charts. Um, there'll even be a link to the index that is priced by Standard & Poor's. This is the same S&P 500 Standard & yeah. Poor's. So, um, 
know, take a look at some of those websites. And uh, if you've got any questions, please feel free to, to, to reach out to us. Awesome. Well, thank you both for taking the time. Thank you. It was very, very educational. And hopefully the, the listeners will think the same. Thank you. Thanks, Bart. Appreciate it. Sure. And we look forward to being back in the studio again next week. Thank you all for listening. Cheers. Tune in next week for the latest edition of the Zanbergen Report, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Catch up on our recent shows by visiting podcast.bartzanbergen.com. The Zanbergen Report is also available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Interested in being a featured guest on our show or have a question you'd like to hear us answer? Email podcast at bartzanbergen.com. The contents of this podcast episode do not constitute an offer of securities or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities and may not be relied upon in making an investment decision related to any investment offering Access Wealth Management LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Access does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. Opinions are our current opinions and are subject to change without notice. Prices, quotes, rates are subject to change without notice. Generally, investments are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed and may lose value. Brokerage services are offered through to Sarah Capital, member FINRA.